This is CliffCentral.com. Is taxation theft and slavery? Is the state justified in taking away someone's resources to redistribute these to someone else or to society as a whole? Or is taxation better thought of as a kind of social due which goes toward contributing to the society that enabled the accumulation of resources in the first place? This social due might also be seen to be contributing to a society in which the most vulnerable receive basic goods and services. On today's episode, Freedom versus Social Welfare. This show is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and hosted by Gwen and Gwenya and Mark Oppenheimer. So, libertarians take this line that um, whatever personal property you've accumulated is yours and you have a strong property right to it. And that when the state takes that away from you in the form of taxation, that it amounts to theft on the basis that they have no rightful claim to that property. And it amounts to slavery on the basis that the way you accumulate that property is through your labor. So you spend the enormous amount of time in your, in your job, you work, you accumulate this profit and the state takes it away from you without your consent. Therefore, using your labor as a means to other people's end, because that money is then used for, you know, other people's uh, goods and services in the form of social welfare. So the money is spent on hospitals, on schools, on social grants, um, but at the expense of the rich. So is this justifiable? Well, in my mind, I, 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 mean, I don't agree that taxation is theft. I, I, I view taxation perhaps more as a social debt that we are paying, you know, repaying. Since there are so many services and just this site that we live in, um, you know, benefits that we, that we accrue by living in a particular community. And I see it perhaps, if I am going to use an analogy, maybe if you had a, you know, a DEGS or a communal, um, you know, setup where you all put money towards a part in order to maintain the society or the the living standards that you um, you know that that you, that you all are accustomed to. So you might so in that, in that environment of everyone putting in their share, putting in money in the pot, then it's 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 not theft in that sense. So the libertarian is going to respond in this way. They're going to say, "All right, fine. There are certain things where it makes sense for us to collectivize our resources. So when it comes to um, building roads, um, having an army, a police force, courts, none of those things should really be dealt with privately." Uh, so if we all put our money into the pot, we can all get the use of that system. Okay. But the other things I can pay for myself. So if I want to uh, send my kids to a good school, I'll send them to a private school. In fact, in you know, South Africa, public schools aren't very good. Um, same with, with, uh, with public um, hospitals. Right? I can spend my money on a private solution. So I don't need to collectivize. I don't need to have this digs environment where we all contribute, and I don't actually wind up being a net beneficiary because of the collectivization. What happens is that you know, the poorest in the society end up leeching off of those that happen to have spent more time working and accumulating resources. Well, I think there are, there are different issues to be addressed there. I mean, the one point is to say that firstly, there is, you know, uh, you are in this, in the society where there is this, this setup. If you don't like it, one option might be to leave. Um, and I don't think it should be the society's problem that there might not be a society for you to move in. But in, in any case, that's a counterfactual because there are, in fact, countries around the world, et cetera, that don't have a taxation system. So potentially, if someone was irked enough to that point to contribute, that, you know, leaving could be, could be one option. But I think it is important though to not really explore the option of saying well you can leave is to really address the 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 idea that taxation is theft as i've highlighted i don't think it is it's more paying back a social debt because you have access to services um 
infrastructure, et cetera, that in many cases previous generations would have contributed from that you did not build. I mean, when you drive down the road, it's not it's not your taxes that build that road. It might down the line maintain the road, build new roads, et cetera. But I think there's a great deal of infrastructure, um, not just physical in- infrastructure, but institutional infrastructure. The fact that there's a, a judicial system or functioning courts, et cetera, and some paid for by the state, et cetera. There's just so many um, institutions around you when you enter into this world or enter into a particular society that I think that's what you what you're contributing to. So you're contributing to this communal part to help society function in a, in a, in a, in a particular way. The problem that you address towards the end of, well, not everyone does contribute is, 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 is a fair point. So, of course, only some people contribute, but I think it's those that can be reasonably be expected to contribute. And I think this brings in other ideas, um, you know, in political philosophy around, or even in moral philosophy, but in, I suppose in, 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 in many areas of thought around free will. Um, and I think so many of libertarian and even some liberal ideas are grounded on this idea that why should my hard earned resources go to somebody else? And so, and that line of thinking is grounded in a, a deeper assumption that we determine our, where we are in the world through our talents and our hard work, etc. But the assignment of talents and your original position, etc. is quite arbitrary. And actually there's, you know, if agency is limited. I think agency is a very important concept and uh, I think people do have agency to an extent. But I think to assume that agency is unfettered is a mistake. And for me, it's because agency is not unfettered that we must um, be able to support the most vulnerable in society to take care of them um, where, you know, they're in, a, in the position that they are in some part due just to chance. Okay, so given the sort of idea of what the libertarian position is, I'll tell you a little bit about the, the Rawlsian liberal position. So Rawls has this idea of an original position, and it can be quite well encapsulated with this little thought experiment. Mm. So it says, imagine this. Um, you wake up and you're lying in a hospital bed, and you're covered head to toe in bandages, and you've got uh, a mild form of amnesia to the extent that you can't remember your name, your age, your race, your ethnicity, your, you know, the country that you were born in, um, but you have some basic understanding of economics and human psychology. Lying in this bed, doctor walks in and he says, I'm going to give you a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which is that I'm going to let you set the rules for the world that you step into once I take off the bandages and open the door. Now, the idea is that certain information has been removed from you, so you've got this veil of ignorance. You're starting the position before you know what the world will look like. Um, Rawls assumes that there'll be a position of moderate scarcity, so there's not a massive abundance of resources, um, but there's also uh, not extreme scarcity. So one of the things you might think of is, if I'm going to set up a rule about um, equal treatment under the law, and I don't know um, what particular group I fall into, it would be against my self-interest to introduce a sexist or a racist law, because I might wind up being part of that discriminated against group. So one of the things that I'm going to want is make sure that there is equality before the law. Okay. The other thing that I might care about is having access to not just the basic set of rights, uh, but a basic set of resources. So I don't know if I'm going to be born with some sort of disability uh, or enter this world, uh, you know, impoverished. So in order to have what he calls fair equality of opportunity, the idea that I can make a go of it in this world, um, I'm not going to need just access to rights, but I'm going to need some basic resources like an education, like, you know, if I get sick, that there's a hospital that I can go to. He thinks that it's in people's rational self-interest to agree to those provisions being put in place. Um, And really what you're doing is saying, 
if you were in this original position, which is a position of fairness, you would agree that this basic bundle of rights and resources must be given to everyone because that's what's best for you. Now, we don't find ourselves in the original position. We find ourselves where we are now. And so what you might think is that instead of arguing from position of fairness, what we're arguing for is our position of relative privilege or not privilege. So you can say, I'm incredibly wealthy and I don't want to hand over my stuff, or I'm very poor, so I want lots of your stuff. He thinks that's the wrong position to be arguing from. You want this abstract position, and that tells you what the correct um, formulation of a just society is, and then you can compare the status quo to that. Well, I mean, I agree. I mean, I'm quite a Rawlsian myself. I think... um you know, his conception of justice and really the role of social institutions is, is, is quite apt. And, and I mean, I, I think you can use that justification for, for why we have these, ba- you know, these, these basic sets of, uh, of rights and perhaps why the state or government should be the one to, to, to allocate those. But I think another important consideration is perhaps moving on to, you know, another area of thoughts that you don't choose to be born. And I'd like to think that if you are born into this world, there's at least a, a minimum obligation to ensure that um, your right to life is protected and that means access to those um, you know minimal resources so i think where it gets interesting for us is we can accept that you know uh, you have some rights against the state um, and maybe some rights against your parents because they brought you into existence and the question is how much should the state be spending on these socioeconomic goods so, so the south african constitution is quite interesting in this regard in that we have um, quite a progressive constitution. So we have the basic civil and political rights, you know, the right not to have your life taken away from you, the right to vote. Um, but then we also have these positive obligations on the state. So the state's got to make sure that there's adequate access to water and to food and to housing and to basic education, um, and that that must be drawn from the fiscus, which is coming out of the taxes. This is quite unusual. Most countries don't have these justiciable um, second-generation rights. Um, mm. But if we say that's our landscape, then we start to want to look into the technical bit about, well, how much should actually be spent? So in South Africa, we spend 60% of the budget on social welfare, so in the form of uh, grants. Um, so there's, I think it's um, 17 million social grants are paid out. Um, some people get um, dual beneficiaries, so you could be um, getting a disability grant and an old age grant. The majority of grants that are paid out are for, for children. Um, now... One of the concerns that's often raised with creating a childcare grant, as much as that child is vulnerable and needs the money, uh, it may create a perverse incentive, that it mm-hmm. incentivizes people to have more kids. Um, do you think there's anything to this? Well, I mean, I, I have my own issues with the Africa's social welfare system because I, I don't think that it caters to, you know, to, to really that, you know, to destitution, to extreme deprivation, um, et cetera, because it, it caters for, I mean, you know, war veterans, a disability grant, if, you know, a, a, pensioner, you know, if, if you reach a particular age and of course a child grant, etc. And, and I think what we need to start looking at and perhaps it's opening up a minefield, but is the idea of a basic income grant because I think that would speak more to what we're talking about that each human being um, needs a minimal um, level of resources in order to, to be alive. And there's nothing currently in our social welfare system um, that caters to that particular need. So I think, I mean, besides the, the childcare grant, I think South Africa's social welfare system needs a great deal of rethinking in terms of how do we actually make sure that we have a government that um, addresses the, the needs of the most vulnerable in society. And I don't think at the moment that it's tailored around doing just that. 
Well, I suppose – so if you have a basic income grant, it means that everyone receives the grant, including the wealthy. Well, um, it doesn't have to be – okay, there's basic income grant, whether it's a universal basic income grant. But, but yes, I think most conceptions of it envision that even the wealthy would receive it, yes, so everyone. Yeah. Um, and the, the, one of the advantages of that is you don't have the, the cost of a needs-based assessment um, and that you might make it that really the wealthy – it's not worth their time to go and claim the grant – um, having to stand in a government office, uh, or yeah. that they get it as a tax credit. Um, well, exactly. Um, of course, the money's got to come from somewhere, um, and so you can't just inject money into the market. When you do that, you deflate the value of money. Um, and so there is this countervailing value of wanting to assist those that are disadvantaged. Um, and what's interesting yeah. about the South African grant system is that it is a non-racial system. So you know, in the context of affirmative action, most people take the view that we should have a race-based affirmative action system. But we have the biggest non-racial system. We don't ask, are you black or white when we hand out the grant? Yes, we really means. ask, you know, based on a means, based on a need. Um, and that's, you know, you might think is quite a successful way of, of driving it. Yeah. Is a concern, of course, Racial Relations released a stat recently that there are more people on social grants um, than there are employed. Yeah. Um, and ultimately what you'd rather have is a growing economy um, so that people are able to, you know, work to sustain themselves as opposed to um, – requiring sustenance from the state. Well, yes, but I don't think that those ideas are necessarily um, intention, you know, in, intention one another. I think you obviously want to first address, I mean, as, as we've done, you know, what is the role of government and perhaps, you know, some, some a crude formulation might be to, to keep people safe or for security reasons. And I think even in that quite simplistic assertion, still a social welfare state comes in because I think security has to mean more than just physical security and that income security is quite an important part of that because it still, is, you know, shows, um, the right to life, et cetera. Once you've accepted that the role is a le- legitimate role to play in terms of keeping people alive or at least helping people to just be above, um, you know, poverty, et cetera, then you might, you know, ask, well, how then do we do that through taxation? And we've just had the conversation around whether taxation is theft or not. I think then the question becomes, well, who's entitled, um, you know, to this grant and what are the effects of, of, of having the social welfare system? And I think that's where we then start to say, well, perhaps it should only really be catered towards the, the poorest of the poor, those who cannot reasonably be expected to, to help themselves. And that's perhaps one of the benefits of the basic income grant is that, well, if there are, if there's a taxation system in place alongside this uh, basic income grant, of course, those who already pay taxes, it will just you know, work out as a kind of a tax credit for them, but they would still on a net basis be give contributing money to the state as opposed to actually be receiving anything um, in return. And of course, then you would still want to create an economy in which it's geared to having people earn their own incomes and that the, the idea of a basic income grant or really any social welfare system, no matter how it's um, you know, conceived is that it should just be providing a social safety net to people in society that they cannot fall below a particular level. Um, and that, you know, to, to kind of create a minimum or a floor for, for human survival. And so I don't think, you know, this would be a counter to perhaps some sentiments usually coming from, um, you know, those who would prefer this, the, the government, the state to really have a very minimalistic role and perhaps not even um, appreciate taxations. Perhaps libertarians, you might say this, you know, incentivizes people to just live off the state. It will make people lazy, et cetera. But I don't think it's true because the, the reality is that in most countries that amount would be so minimal that there's been contributed that it's just really just to keep you alive, to, you know, keep you from starvation. Potentially even maybe, um, give you access to shelter. I'm not even sure in South Africa if we'd be able to, to go that far. 
but it certainly would not ensure a decent and comfortable living. So the incentive to go out there to, to earn money, to work, to be an entrepreneur would still be there. So I think the context is going to matter, as you say, and part of it is how much money you have available. And in a certain context like South Africa, you might want to set it at that basic survival level. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think what you want is people to be able to not merely survive, but, you know, um, transcend their circumstances because you've given them access to decent opportunities. So they've, when they've had their basic education, it's a good education. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what it's doing, right? Because it's saying that if, if you're starving, you know, you're not even going to think because there's sometimes this idea of, you know, just, well, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, and come on, you know, f- you know, fight it out, you know. But if you're, if you're even struggling about where you're going to take your next dump because actually you don't have access to any kind of ablution facilities, you're worried about, um, you know, when you're going to get your next meal because you're starving, you're really worried about Basic, basic um, needs for human survival. There's no room there within a day to think about, you know, where you're going to get your next job, etc. So I would envision that uh, a social welfare system is geared towards getting people into the workforce because it's helping to satisfy those basic needs. If you can't even think of it as a kind of massive hierarchy of needs where the basic needs are taken care of, so they can think about then those next level needs. So to switch context a little bit, if we're in a country like Sweden where people are very well off and they have a big social safety net as well, taxes are very high. Yes. You know, there we're not talking about guarding against survival, you know, or we're talking about crimes people quite comfortable lives. So there, for example, they have a, a right to the internet. Um, you know, that's seen as something that people are, it's, it's in order to, you know, be a fully functioning human being, they think you need this right too. Um, mm. Do you think that the richer the country gets, the more you expand the social safety net? Or is it a matter of saying, no, everyone is surviving comfortably, we should scrap it entirely? I don't know if the idea is so much whether the richer the, the, the country gets, but I do accept the notion that living standards do, do change and what's necessary for, for survival will change as time goes on. I mean, we can imagine a stage where the world is so driven by a knowledge economy that if you have absolutely no skills at all, there might just be absolutely no opportunity for you to work. You'd be completely shut off from the economy, etc. And especially maybe if you don't have access to technology, um, you might be rendered you know, quite, quite incapacitated in such a climate. So I think that there is room for reevaluating what's necessary. I mean, in a, in a, in a, in a different time, perhaps education might not be seen as a basic human right. You know, why do you need to be educated? You can perhaps just apprentice under your, your parent or who, who, whoever. Why do you need to enter some kind of formal institutionalized process? I suppose some might still argue today that, that it's not necessary, but at the very least, I think it provides us with an example to say, you know, society does change and the needs and the requirements of being a productive member of society might change over time. I don't know if it's changed so much in in the 21st century and in Sweden that perhaps the Internet's a basic human right. Maybe there's scope to argue that. But I think broadly as a principle, there is room to argue that those rights might change what those basic rights are. I'm not, I'm not sure if you, if you feel the same or do you think there's kind of an unchanging set of rights that might hold throughout time? So you might think what, what encompasses the good life is going to be one of those things that changes over time. Um, yes. I think basic survival is going to be one of those things that uh, is might quite, quite consistent. You need certain access to shelter and food and water, etc. Um, mm. But we, we start to think that that's not sufficient for a good life and we want to up that level if we can afford mm. to do so. But you raise another interesting point, which is that as technology changes – we're going to find that a whole bunch of people are locked out of the economy because they don't have the requisite skills. So the BBC released an interesting list of 
um, current current careers and what the likelihood yes. was that they would cease to exist because of changes in tech. So let's just look at one example. So there's a lot of talk about self-driving cars. Okay. Um, so there are so many people that their job is to drive trucks, to drive um, taxis. Um, and if you have self-driving cars, the need for all those jobs completely disappears. Okay. So you're going to wind up, you know, as, as time progresses with more and more people unemployable. And you might think that in such a society, it's quite important for those people to be safeguarded, that there's enormous benefits in having technology. We found that, you know, the more tech we have, um, the better it is for us overall. Some people are rendered unemployed for periods of time, um, often temporarily so. Um, you know, because with technology come new opportunities. But we could eventually reach a state where um, very few people actually work. Um, but we're producing so much good because of all the technology, um, and we want to make sure that all people have some access to those goods that are produced. And again, then some sort of basic income grant is going to be a very good way of dealing with that situation. Yeah. I mean, this area brings up very interesting ideas. I mean, even the whole Schumpeterian idea of creative destruction, that you kind of need that um, rejuvenation in industries and it will build new industries that will then create their own jobs aligned to to, uh, to the new innovation. But the point is that that's, that's happened over a period of time and what happens to people while society is going through the various stages of transition. So for that reason, I think we do need a, a, a you know, safety net to catch people in those times where perhaps they've been made redundant and their skills are no longer suitable and they maybe try and um, reorientate themselves in a, in a changed economy. Sure. Like as podcast says, we're irreplaceable. Yes, there might be bots doing our work soon. (laughs) So if we accept that there is some moral reason why you ought to have social grants and a social safety net in general, um, should it be done by the state? Is the state the most efficient body? I mean, this is going to be one of the claims that the state often acts corruptly, um, that they administer things poorly, and that maybe the money should be, um, you know, handed over to some independent body, but a private body, um, which administers it. Well, I think there's two questions around, you know, who, whether we need the government in this at all. Well, one is, as, as, as you say, whether people would in fact give. And the other is, or at least for me, is around allocation. So even if we accept that perhaps people might donate to charities, et cetera, or find some other means of taking care of those who are vulnerable in society, I would still have doubts about the allocation. So can we trust that people will donate to where there's the greatest need? Or perhaps will we all be donating to, you know, save the rhinos while people are dying of starvation? And I think the state not only provides a way of collecting money, but also of allocating it, you know, in, in a manner that we might think is, 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 is efficient. And of course, there's the you know the state is never 100% efficient, but I think where where that comes in is in the process of democracy, where we can vote. And if we think that we have a particular elected representatives who are not you know spending you know our, our state revenue in the areas in which society is most concerned, perhaps we can align ourselves with a different kind of manifesto and a, a political party that might spend that money more wisely. Sure. So you might think. So I'm that just saying there's there's efficiency concerns and there's allo, allo, sorry there's allocative concerns and there's ones about whether people would give without a taxation system would people be giving the same amounts to to charities, um and and and, and other private organisations essentially. Yeah, I mean there's a there's an even larger question which is that, and let's say in Sweden where the money that's being used is used for the benefit of Swedes, those aren't the most vulnerable, um and you might think that really what what you ought to have is not some sort of 
national tax collection authority, but an international one, you know, that takes from those that, you know, have the most and redistributes to those that are the most in need. Um, if you take that to its logical extreme. Yes, but then that would require us, I think, first to accept some idea of global citizenship, whereas we still live in these, you know, sovereign nations and actually everyone is a citizen of a nation state as opposed to a citizen of the world. So I think there's perhaps some other ideological battles to overcome before we can get to that conception of social welfare. Yes. I mean, if you're a cosmopolitan, you think that all people matter equally regardless of their national origin. And to yes. some very small extent, this is catered for. So, you know, States do donate a certain amount of money uh, towards foreign aid, um, but maybe again we've we've rejiggered the numbers in the wrong manner there. That actually, you know, those that are, um, you know, on on the verge of starvation or you know, uh, in environmental peril. So if you live in Bangladesh and you might have your you know your, your home wiped out because of rising uh, ocean levels, or you live in the Maldives, these are very vulnerable people, and that they have some sort of right in virtue of their humanity. Um, Against wealthier nations. Yes, that's true. But then I suppose if we're taking this global view, they wouldn't have a, a, a right against wealthier nations, but against wealthier people, because the conception is that wealthy people would be distributed across the world, and so would poverty be distributed across the world. So it'd be some kind of wealth transfer between rich and poor across the globe, as opposed to necessarily wealthy nations and poorer nations. In other words, the poor and wealthy nations might be the recipients of those transfers as well. So the transfers become between people as opposed to, you know, between countries. Yeah, I think there's two different ways to do it. As you say, the one is you maintain nation states and they contribute differentially to some sort of international fund. And the other one is you dissolve nation states and it's about transfers between people. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think we've, we've talked quite a lot about, um, you know, the underlying moral reasons for why we ought to have um, some sort of social safety net for people. Um, why, as a free agent, you could choose such a system. Um, but how you might want reasonable restraints to prevent things like um, government corruption, why you might want to ensure that there's efficiency within the system, and that maybe the best way to do that is through the democratic process, by keeping mm-hmm. checks on those that have the power to distribute this money. Thank you. Right. Thanks from me, Cecilia Koch from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, for joining us for this episode of Freedom Versus. We hope you found it thought-provoking. And thanks to Mtoba Chapi for the editing, visuals and graphics, and Greg Cohen for the audio. Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, Freedom Versus. That's two words, and versus is spelled V-E-R-S-U-S. There, you can watch the discussions between Gwen and Mark. Our YouTube channel also features additional content. Enjoy! This is CliffCentral.com.